Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcast that I do. It's a companion piece to this one, except I cover brand new movies that are out in theaters or on VOD or streaming services, and it's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can check out that link at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to get into the second part of a three-part series looking at fantasy films of the 1980s that are based on characters created by author Robert E. Howard. Last episode, I covered Conan the Barbarian, and of course, there was another Conan movie that was done in the 1980s called Conan the Destroyer, and that's today's film from 1984. It brings back Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, as Conan, Olivia Dabo, Wilt Chamberlain, Grace Jones, Tracy Walter, Mako, Sarah Douglas, Pat Roach, and Jeff Corey are in this film. Richard Fleischer takes over as director. Stanley Mann gets credit for the screenplay. After the success of 1982's Conan the Barbarian, its rights holder, a toy company heir named Edward R. Pressman, he set about getting a follow-up made. And Pressman had his star already, Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was signed on to a five-picture deal, so continuing to roll the hot dice was pretty much a no-brainer. Now, one surprising person that did not return for this follow-up was director John Milius. Milius had wanted to make a trilogy of films, and the first one was successful, but he was contractually obligated to direct Red Dawn before he could entertain other offers, and Dino De Laurentiis, one of the executive producers, clashed with John Milius repeatedly when they were making Conan the Barbarian. He did not want to wait, and there were reasons why. They received a lot of complaints from younger viewers for the first Conan the Barbarian that they were not allowed to see that movie because it was R-rated. So, Pressman and De Laurentiis wanted a PG-rated sequel here, and of course, Milius was likely not going to be on board for that. The adult-oriented Conan had extinguished merchandising opportunities that were normally afforded to popular intellectual properties that appealed to kids and teens like Conan would. So they wanted to capitalize on all of that untapped money if they could. The first big director attached to Conan 2, which was what it was called in the very early phase, was Roger Donaldson. Now, Donaldson was overseeing the script development as well for Conan 2, which was eventually turned into Conan King of Thieves. The screenwriting team brought in by Pressman happened to be his old friend Roy Thomas from Marvel Comics and Jerry Conway. They had just written another sword and sorcery film from 1983 called Fire and Ice, and they had the clout there because of that to be able to get hired on pretty easily with De Laurentiis. Now, Thomas and Conway incorporated elements from Robert E. Howard's books, as well as the Marvel comics that Roy Thomas had been writing for over a decade from the 70s into the early 80s. They envisioned Conan leading a gang of adventuring thieves instead of being a brooding loner for this film. They borrowed concepts that Robert E. Howard fans would recognize from his books or from their own Marvel comic series. Schwarzenegger ended up reading their first draft. He liked it, and he signed on immediately. Now, during this phase, to pay off his debts, Edward R. Pressman sold all of his sequel rights to De Laurentiis for the sum of $4.5 million 
and 10% of the gross for any sequels that he made. And in that deal, he released Roger Donaldson to De Laurentiis to take over directorial duties for De Laurentiis' troubled production called The Bounty. Now, De Laurentiis provided script oversight in Donaldson's absence, and then he assigned his daughter, Raffaella, to take the producer's chair in place of Pressman. And through interpreters, Dino De Laurentiis informed the screenwriters that he was not really that interested in the Conan property. He really didn't care for the first film, except it made him money. So he felt that the second movie should make more money than the first one because he wanted it to go in a more broadly appealing direction. And he started to make demands that, to the screenwriter, defied logical explanation. So the screenwriters, under De Laurentiis' instructions, they removed all ties to the first film so new audiences that were joining with Conan the Destroyer would not be confused by those details. For instance, Subutai, he was set to be in the sequel, and he was supposed to perish somewhere in the story there. He was changed into this comic relief character called Malik the Quick, who was not set to die in this film. All in all, Thomas and Conway, they ended up revising their original concept four times at De Laurentiis' request. Schwarzenegger told De Laurentiis that the screenplay was going astray. The three-part story structure seemed to be ill-defined. It started without enough explanation of how the characters got there or where they were going in the end. And he felt that De Laurentiis was wimping out by not providing the kind of sex and violence that the true fans of Conan expect in order to garner that PG rating. De Laurentiis took this in mind, but he was in the business to make money. He's a businessman, first and foremost, above being a filmmaker. De Laurentiis cycled through a few replacement directors for Donaldson. William Deere was one of the names. He ended up eventually settling on veteran director Richard Fleischer. Now, Fleischer had worked for De Laurentiis before, 1961's Barabbas, 1975's Mandingo, and he had just made 1983's Amityville 3D for De Laurentiis. And Fleischer... He had also directed another movie, not for De Laurentiis, but it was 1958's The Vikings, which happened to be one of John Milius's influences when he made Conan the Barbarian, and that made him a pretty suitable choice for the follow-up. Now, Fleischer's only prior exposure to Conan as a property altogether was the John Milius film, so he felt it was quality work, but... It was short-sighted in its potential to become a real blockbuster. Dramatic tension in that film was not relieved by any kind of humor, and that resulted in a leaden and downbeat viewing experience for those people who are not invested in those characters. Now, similarly, he felt that the Thomas and Conway script lacked substantial entertainment value. He liked their first draft. It had a lot of literary references that he respected, but it was lengthy and it was complicated and it would be expensive to produce. And the subsequent revisions that they did under De Laurentiis' guidance grew weaker with each pass. So Fleischer met with the screenwriters and in that conversation, he surmised Thomas and Conway were burning out on the screenwriting process. They started to grow defensive about their script, and they seemed reticent to explore new directions or inject the quantity of humor that Fleischer thought was necessary. The jokes that they had in their script in their latest revision played like embarrassingly juvenile comic book gags, or so Fleischer described them as. Roy Thomas later took issue with Fleischer's description of those gags. He felt that the attempts at humor that are evident in the final film were much more indicative of embarrassingly juvenile humor than anything that he had written in their original draft. Now, Fleischer ended that meeting by requesting copies of Robert E. Howard's books and a sampling of the issues of the Conan comics written by Roy Thomas in order to see where they should go from there. 
That happened to be the last time that the screenwriting team heard from Fleischer. When the shoot began in late October 1983, they were surprised to find suddenly Stanley Mann, someone wholly unfamiliar with Conan at all, was listed as the sole screenwriter. Stanley Mann, very well respected in the business, but still not quite the right fit. He did his writing in the director's living room every day. Fleischer edited what he was writing in real time to save time from having to do continuous revisions later. Mann ended up restructuring the storyline to fit into more of that classic three-part narrative. While he also made the characters less dramatic, he emphasized much more their humorous aspects, and he brought in a lot of magic and romance and action, something that would entertain young and old alike. Thomas and Conway ended up growing livid that Stanley Mann received sole ownership of the script, and they ended up arbitrating with the Screenwriters Guild to get a story by credit. They felt that Stanley Mann was only making cosmetic changes to their plot and their character introductions. 90% of the story that remained in Stanley Mann's script was really things that they had come up with. And the 10% that did change came from either Thomas's verbal suggestions to Fleischer in their meeting or from material he had given to Fleischer either in the Robert E. Howard books or in the Conan comic books that he himself had written. They speculated after the fact that De Laurentiis probably removed their names from the script in order to avoid this deal that they had with Pressman for back-end money if he used their screenplay. They would eventually release their original script story in comic book form in the 1990 Marvel Comics graphic novel called Conan, The Horn of Azoth. Now, as far as the direction goes from Fleischer, he found Arnold Schwarzenegger to be a very likable and engaging actor to utilize. He wasn't going to shy away like Milius did from giving Conan dialogue and emotional moments because he actually didn't feel at this point that his lead actor's performance would detract from the adventure at hand. The title changed from Conan King of Thieves at that point to Conan the Destroyer because Arnold Schwarzenegger complained that Conan was really not a thief. He doesn't sneak around to steal the treasure. He really just goes up and takes what he wants. He doesn't worry that it's going to get him into trouble. And the Destroyer seemed more fitting to the naming convention of the books. A lot of the books that were compiled of Robert E. Howard stories started with Conan the and then another word to describe him. And also, Conan usually leaves rubble in his wake, so the Destroyer seemed appropriate. The plot involves this power-hungry queen named Taramis of Shadazar, played by Sarah Douglas. Taramis offers Conan a bargain. She's going to resurrect his dead lover from the first film, Valeria, bringing back actually a character from the first film. She's going to resurrect her if he completes a special mission. Conan is to assist with the protection of Taramis's niece, this young virgin princess named Jenna, played by Olivia Dabo. And Jenna is going to travel with her bodyguard Bombada, played by Wilt Chamberlain, to venture into this mystical castle to retrieve a key in the form of a magic jewel called the Heart of Araman, that by prophecy only someone who bears the distinctive mark like Jenna can touch. And this key is going to unlock a fabled horn that promises to bring the dormant dreamer god, Dagoth, to the mortal realm. The twist here is that at the end of the quest, Jenna is going to be a sacrificial offering to Dagoth, and Conan and his friends are going to die as well. Now, these friends that accompany Conan include the great wizard Akiro, that's Mako, who appeared in the first film, pretty much in the same character, the agile warrior named Zula, played by Grace Jones, and Conan's comical sidekick, Malak the Thief, played by Tracy Walter. Now, Schwarzenegger felt it was 
just a mistake to make a PG-rated Conan adventure because in trying to broaden the film's appeal, they were taking away the vitality and the true nature of the character, who is a warrior who continually engages in violent battles. Fleischer here is upping the juvenile delivery for the younger audiences. He wants to branch the franchise out to kids who are either reading the comic books or they love pro wrestling matches or they like the tomb raiding adventures of Indiana Jones or similar premises like very popular television fare like the Masters of the Universe. The filming took place at various locations in Mexico, where the peso's value had been at an all-time low. And to further save money, some of the staging for De Laurentiis' Dune, which was being made at the same time near the same place, they were also used for Conan the Destroyer, while retaining a lot of the same crew to work on both films. And as Dune became much more expensive, De Laurentiis ended up slashing the budget, unfortunately, for Conan several times. And in the end, the film carried only a modest $16 million budget. That was less than even the first film, which was much more of a gamble. Now, Schwarzenegger here is decidedly more defined in his physique in this sequel. He reduced body fat and he added much more muscle weight. And that was because Fleischer did not hold himself to the kind of commitment to realism that John Milius did for the first film. Fleischer, when he first started working on the film, he was invited by Schwarzenegger up to his house to see him train with using a sword. Things went without a hitch in the demonstration. Fleischer was very impressed with his physical talents, but he did have one request after watching him. He felt that the first movie really did not utilize Arnold's physique enough. He looked more like a powerful version of an average man. This film, he felt, should spotlight Arnold's chiseled frame in all its glory for as much as it can, and Conan is going to be much more powerful. Fleischer felt that people would want to look at Arnold's body as much as they could, so he had Conan wear as little as possible throughout the movie. Now, the acting in Conan the Destroyer is a major liability, and that's pretty typical of early Schwarzenegger vehicles. This liability is pretty evident whenever you see former NBA great Wilt Chamberlain on the screen. He was really cast solely for his physical stature. He stands at a towering 7 foot 1 inch tall. He doesn't have a lot of ability to emote, and really, he doesn't even try to. The one snag there, though, there weren't any horses that were tall enough for Wilt to be able to sit on without his feet completely dragging on the ground in Mexico, so they ended up importing another horse that was much taller from Spain. And one funny thing that would come out later, Wilt Chamberlain claimed to have bedded over 20,000 women in his life, so looking at it nowadays, you can't help but find humor in the fact that Chamberlain plays someone protecting the virginity of this princess. As far as why he's not tempted, there's this explanatory scene of Bambata being a eunuch that ended up getting taken out of the script, but it does remain in the novelization if you should read it. Now, Fleischer felt that Chamberlain was a tremendous physical presence, but he was too self-conscious in front of the camera, so he decidedly steered giving Bambata anything that would require lengthy dialogue or any kind of emotional range, and that left the role merely as just a physical presence and a plot device that was going to break out in the climax. As far as other casting is concerned, model and avant-garde singer Grace Jones, she does play the fierce warrior thief named Zula. Now, Zula happens to be a character created by Roy Thomas for the Conan the Barbarian comic book, but he was a man in the print form. But they thought, hey, Grace Jones would make a good fit here. They used the name Zula in the script as a placeholder until they could come up with something better, but the producers liked the name, so it stuck. 
Zula here represents Grace Jones' first significant acting role in anything other than some obscure Italian films. Jones turned down Conan for six months while she was pursuing another Italian movie, this one made by the nephew of Dino De Laurentiis. Ultimately, she accepted the role for Conan because the other project fell through. Now, Grace Jones provides a uniquely feral look and a good physicality, even if the role lacks dimension. She became overly enthusiastic during her battle sequences famously. She hit the stunt people hard with this eight-foot fighting stick, and that caused them to have to put on a lot of extra padding whenever they did a scene with her. She tempered any bruises with a kiss afterward, though. Now, one person who didn't get a kiss was Wilt Chamberlain. Grace Jones bit his ear hard in one scene, enough to draw blood, Although people on the set were not surprised that this happened because she and Wilt bitterly argued the entire time that they were on the set. Now, Sarah Douglas chose the scenery as the evil sorceress, Taramis. Sarah Douglas had turned down the role six times before she told De Laurentiis finally, yes, but it was only because she had heard that her friend, Grace Jones, was going to be in the picture, so she wanted to do a movie with her friend. Taramis was supposed to be a much more sympathetic character than she appears in the final product because all of her redeeming qualities ended up on the cutting room floor when they were trying to trim down the film to a close to a 90-minute film as they could. Although it seems unlikely, if you're watching this film in its current state, she did film a steamy love scene with Conan that was meant to be put in the film. It ended up getting trimmed out, not only for time, but to try to maintain that PG rating. Other scenes that were cut out for Taramis involve such things as seducing the Dagoth statue with some stroking and, and slapping around Bombada very violently in one scene. And she also performs the sacrifice of her niece. Now, that niece is played by 13-year-old Olivia Dabo. She's it's basically one of her first, if not her first, one of her first roles. She's very fetching as this young princess with an eye for Conan, one of the only men she's ever laid eyes on in her virginal lifetime. Now, the young actress gives, I think, the closest thing that the film has toward delivering a nuanced performance, but she, I feel, undeservedly received a Razzie nomination Actually, two Razzie nominations, one for Worst Supporting Actress and one for Worst New Star for her turn in this film as well as in Bolero. I have a feeling that Bolero was the one that really stunk up all of the Razzies. But I like her in this film. I know a lot of people may find her annoying. Pat Roach, he is here playing three separate roles. He plays the wizard Tothamon, a character of Robert E. Howard's who was also the basis for many traits that were put into Thulsa Doom in Conan the Barbarian. Roach happened to also be in the Carlo Rambaldi-designed caped ape-man suit, which took five and a half hours of makeup time every day for about three weeks. And he also, and a lot of people don't know this, he donned the Dagoth costume when the uncredited Andre the Giant who reportedly was in the Dagoth costume for the most part, he suffered back pain. And it took eight people to get him into the suit and eight other people to control its mechanized aspects. Roach ended up wearing an astronaut suit inside because Andre the Giant was much larger, so it kind of filled up that remaining space, but also to stave off dehydration. And he had a doctor on hand to give him oxygen so he wouldn't pass out after being in the suit too long. Now, the worst casting I feel for Conan the Barbarian is Tracy Walter. He plays the cowardly but cunning thief Malik, who fails here to provide the intended comic relief, so it leaves his character pretty much a bust. They did want Danny DeVito for the part, but he was unavailable, so initially they cast David L. Lander. If you know that name, you're probably as old as I am. He played Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley. Now, Lander, 
He always seemed to be stepping on Fleischer's toes, and then he ended up falling ill during the shoot and reportedly was fired because he appeared to be stumbling drunk all of the time. So Lander was gone, and Walter ended up filling in the role after one day's notice. Now, years afterward, it was discovered that Lander's stumbling was actually the onset of multiple sclerosis. Now, when Fleischer put together his first cut, it ran more than three hours in length. So he had to set about working with Rafaela De Laurentiis, who is Dino's daughter, who also produced the first film on his behalf. They had to chop it down to nearly half that length while still retaining as much action and thrills as possible. So a lot of exposition and character touches end up on that cutting room floor. Conan the Barbarian, I do feel, is a better film than The Destroyer because... Conan the Barbarian has passion, and it's based on the savage vision of a visionary director like John Milius, who had a lot to say within the course of that movie. Richard Fleischer here, he was just a last-minute hired gun for Conan the Destroyer. He was only expected to package together an entertaining product that was designed solely to make money. In contrast to the first entry, the sequel is coated with too much cheese to not find a disappointment overall. I think, though, as a standalone piece, interestingly... It has not aged as poorly as other sword and sorcery flicks from the 1980s. It is still very hokey, but there is a particular enjoyment that can be had by watching this sequel if you divorce it from the first film, which for most people these days, it's hard to do because if you watch Conan the Barbarian and you like it, you immediately want to watch Conan the Destroyer, which will probably destroy your evening if you happen to watch it in a marathon. Now, I think the film comes undone in two key scenes, both for the same reasons, which are battles against villains portrayed in unconvincing rubber suits. The first one involves a man-ape version of the wizard Tothamon in a room of mirrors, added by Stanley Mann in his script. He was inspired by a similar character in Robert E. Howard's Rogues in the House. The other mars the climax with its grotesquely silly-looking Dagoth costume because De Laurentiis just would not pay for the stop-motion animation that they had wanted to make, but it still looks fake, and it's ugly, and it's repugnant, and it just doesn't work. Fleischer says if you want to read into this film any further than surface level, Dagoth is meant to be a metaphor for nuclear energy. It's something that promises unlimited power to people, but it actually carries with it the ability to destroy humanity in the unleashing. This may explain why the monster looks like it would fit in more in a Godzilla flick than something that comes from the world of Conan. I think these scenes with these creatures are dark and gruesome, and it erodes the tongue-in-cheek tone of the rest of the film. On the positive, the cinematography by Academy Award-winning Jack Cardiff, and the set and art design, and the Basil Polidor score, he's returning here as the composer from the first film, they're all genuine highlights. It does look and sound very good, other than those rubber suits. But despite all of the attempts to try to broaden the franchise's base with the sequel, Conan the Destroyer still disappointed at the box office. It made only $31 million in the United States. That was significantly less than the $40 million that was made by the more serious-minded R-rated original. Some of this is due to the unfavorable competition it had with other summer blockbusters. Ghostbusters and Gremlins were in the theaters and were dominating but even with this, it still debuted lower than the other notable film released the same weekend, Cannonball Run 2, which was not a good movie at all. So the signs were there that this was just not going to be that good of a film financially. It did, however, perform slightly better internationally than the first film. And so it was a lucrative venture for them in the end. 
But still, as a sequel, Conan the Destroyer is a failure, especially for fans of the original Robert E. Howard works. It does not deliver on the tone or the promise of its film predecessor in broadening its fan base. But as I mentioned, as a standalone adventure, it does maintain enough moments of enjoyment for fans of quest adventures that feature faraway lands, exotic locales, and the requisite wizards and warriors and princesses. So if you like that kind of thing, you know, if your expectations are low enough, this dumb, fun epic does make for a passably escapist guilty pleasure when you don't watch the two films back to back. So for all of that, I will give Conan the Destroyer two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it had the tools, it had the talent to be something more. You definitely had a good director here, or at least one that has made good movies. You had Schwarzenegger back. You had a pretty good ensemble of colorful character actors in the mix here. All of the requisite bells and whistles that you could want. And yet, it just falls short. It does not continue the first film in a way that would satisfy big fans of that. It doesn't satisfy the fans of the Robert E. Howard books, and it just feels like a goofy sword and sorcery flick from the 1980s. And if that's all you're looking for, you're going to get it here, and you're probably going to enjoy it on that level. But anybody looking for more than that is really going to find that the pleasures are only too superficial to be anything more than just a time-waster escapist entertainment. So two and a half stars out of four is the best I can give Conan the Destroyer, and probably the best almost anybody should give it, even though Roger Ebert gave it three stars. Now, before I leave here, I do want to say a few words about where the franchise kind of went after this and why they didn't come up with another movie, because despite its financial success pretty much ended here. Now, several months before the release of Conan the Destroyer, before they knew it was not going to be the blockbuster they thought it could be, Schwarzenegger agreed to help De Laurentiis get funding for another film he was making almost concurrently called Red Sonja. Now, Red Sonja, the title character, also comes from the Robert E. Howard stories, where she's called Red Sonja of Rogatino. And Sonja was a swashbuckling character that was altered from her 16th century setting in the Robert E. Howard story, to the Hyborian Age and popularized in comics by its screenwriter Roy Thomas in the pages of Conan the Barbarian comic book for Marvel. But for legal reasons, the character Schwarzenegger portrays in Red Sonja would be Conan in everything but his name, and that relegates it to being kind of an unofficial spin-off to Conan. And for what it's worth, it's going to be the film I'm going to be discussing on next episode. So check out 1985's Red Sonja, if you haven't seen it already, to get prepared for the review. Now, plans were for Schwarzenegger to continue to make three additional Conan sequels because they were still lucrative. Universal Pictures seemed all in. They added the Adventures of Conan attraction to its theme park, and it did very well. They purchased the film rights to all of the Conan stories in anticipation for continuing, including those not written by Robert E. Howard. But... Schwarzenegger was souring on the films. He felt that they alienated the fan base by trying to broaden Conan's appeal. And Dino De Laurentiis, he never really understood the character anyway, or fantasy films in general. They were his biggest busts at the box office for the most part. So he really didn't care that much about continuing beyond commissioning a script for Conan 3 by Carl Wagner that never really developed. Now, in the early 1990s, Charles Edward Pogue, he was visiting De Laurentiis, actually Raffaella, and he thought they could do a proper Conan story. He had some ideas in mind, and those ideas ended up turning into a story treatment that Universal Pictures did greenlight, entitled Conan the Conqueror. However, Schwarzenegger's reticence to return to the property caused Universal to 
have to make some changes to the main character because they thought that people would not accept a new Conan. So Conan became King Cole, which was another Robert E. Howard creation, Cole the Conqueror. And that film, Cole the Conqueror, was released in the end in 1997, starring not Schwarzenegger, but TV actor Kevin Sorbo. Charles Edward Pogue's script ended up not getting utilized for that project, though. Now, John Milius, he attended to return to the series. He made a lot of noise on resurrecting the property as early as 2001 with his script called King Conan, Crown of Iron. He was going to be doing this for the Wachowskis, and it was in development for a few years before Wachowskis started losing their clout in the business. And then Robert Rodriguez ended up taking over the project for a few years when John Milius abandoned it. But by this time, Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California, and he was going to be unavailable for quite a long time. So interest in that script ended up dying especially after Conan got a reboot in 2011 that starred Jason Momoa and that flopped at the box office pretty big. In 2012, though, producer Chris Morgan attempted to bring uh, another Conan project called The Legend of Conan to the big screen, and Schwarzenegger was interested in returning because he was done being governor of California and was looking to strike back in the business. That was described by Morgan as a sword and sorcery riff on Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, the older Conan looking back upon his life and his regrets. But after years of development hell, Universal scrapped the plans in 2017 because the budget was going to be pretty high and Conan seemed to have questionable relevance in the more modern era. And Schwarzenegger was not the box office dominator that he once was in his past. So, you know, there's still a lot of talk out there that Schwarzenegger will return as Conan in one form or another, but it continues to be in development hell. Even to this day, you can still find stories of him being interested and waiting for another project to get into. But I don't know. I don't hold out a lot of hope at this point, but you never know what's going to happen. So that's where I will leave it for now. If you have your own thoughts on Conan the Destroyer that you want to impart to me or Conan the Barbarian, you can find all of my contact information on my website, links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram, my email. All those ways are adequate to get in touch with me and let me know what you think of these movies and also any suggestions that you have for the show or any movies that I haven't covered that you want to see me get to sometime in our lifetimes. Quipster.net is where to go for all of the details on that. As I mentioned, Red Sonia for next week. And until next time, thanks for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Mm-hmm.